book of Titus, to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be concluding chapter 2 today. First, I want to address the, the glasses. Someone said they didn't recognize me, and then another person asked me if I could see into the future. And so, the answer to the first question is I'm Kevin still, and the second one, no, I cannot. But I wish I could. If you're going to have to wear glasses this thick, it ought to benefit you some way, huh? Well, anyway, <laughs> if you'd like to know more, we can talk person one-on-one. <clears throat> We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and I want to ask you this morning, the question we want to address is, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? What's our motivation? behind what we do. And when we're asking this question, we're particularly referring to those actions that we would describe as part of our faith, as flowing from our faith. The main thought as we look at this passage this morning is we love because he first loved us. Uh, This is a summary of, this is what the exact words of 1 John, but it is an exact summary of what Titus is going to say to us this morning, or the book of Titus through Paul is going to say to us this morning, why we do what we do, why we obey God, why we uh, do what he calls us to do is because he has loved us first. He's loved us first. Last week, if you were with us, we went through a, a summary of the Christian community and the roles for every individual within the Christian community. And so if you'll look at your notes, there will be many scriptures that we'll refer to this morning outside of Titus. So I would ask you that you would open your bulletin there and take that folded white sheet of paper, and that will be really helpful for to you as we walk through this. And this that at the top of that sheet of paper, you'll see the points from last week. If you weren't here, I would recommend that you go listen to that just to keep up with where we are in Titus. But the points were, we recognize our roles within the body as age groups, our roles, what we're called to do and how we're to function within the community of faith. And we talked about older men are to be leaders, they're to be examples. We talked about the younger ladies, the roles they're to play as being taught by the older ladies in the community. And then younger men are to be self-controlled. And then we talked about that we guard the gospel. This is what we do. We don't want the gospel to be undermined by our behavior because people see us in the way we behave when we call ourselves Christians and them to think, well, that can't be true, it's done nothing in your life. And then we also said we guard the body. We protect the body from being discredited. Because when we go out, each of us representing the body, we can allow the body to be discredited by our own behavior. The gospel is undermined and the body is discredited by how we act, how we behave. But the question we're addressing this morning is, why do we do these things? What's our motivation behind it? And before we get into the just the text, I want us to use a, a couple of the just thoughts from uh, the way that we see Christianity and the things that happen among us that I think give some insight into why we really do what we do. Uh, if you ever, it's kind of fun when you get around a bunch of Christians and they're in a group and then you hear someone talk about, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but have you seen her hair? You know, something like that. You know, there's always this, this kind of thing they say first before they, when they're leading into it. And it's just like, why the disclaimer? I mean, do you not want the other person to think badly of you? What is it that you, you use that disclaimer before you go into it? What's your motivation there? Is it, what other people think of you. It's because you, you want God to hear you say, I probably shouldn't say this, Lord, but I'm going to say it anyway. And he won't think badly of you. 
that reveals something of our motivation. I, I think that others have caught on to this. Some of you may not like this, but one of the stories uh, where I grew up was um, if you don't want, uh, if you're going to take a Baptist fishing and you don't want him to drink all your alcohol, take two Baptists, and then he won't do it. And that, that reveals a little bit of how other people see our motivation. What really motivates our behavior? Our faith and the actions that flow from it. Is it how other people are going to think of us? Or is it Christ and obedience to Him? And this, this happened to me. I went with uh, Katie to a family reunion within the last year. And Katie's family, they're from Texas. And Texans just, they like to dance. Every time they get together, they like to do a dance. And so at the family reunion, part of the family reunion was having a big dance. I mean, it was like four hours long. And so I'm sitting there and someone, the family starts to ask me while I'm not dancing. And they say, oh, you're Baptist. And little did they know, I just can't dance. It has nothing to do with me being Baptist. I just can't dance. But I can't tell you how much it frustrated me that I was, no, it has nothing to do with me being Baptist. If I could dance, I'd be out there, but I can't. And so Others perceive sometimes what really motivates us in our behavior. And so the question I really want to address this morning is, why should we do what we do? And so we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I'd like you to stand with me as we read these verses this morning. It's going to begin with the word for. And Paul begins with this to explain what we already talked about last week of why we do the things that are in verses 2, 1 through 10. He says, we do it for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Paul speaking to Titus. Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to see that the reason for our our obedience is solely based in you and in your work in Jesus Christ. God, that you have loved us, therefore we love in return. Help us to see, Father, that grace necessitates obedience. It necessitates a response. Lord, that we cannot continue in our sin and say that we know you. Lord, convict our hearts this morning. Transform us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me explain a little bit more of John, 1 John 4.19, the summary. We love because He first loved us. You see, the love that God has shown us necessitates a reaction. Either we reject it and say, God, no, I'm not going to respond to your love to me in Jesus Christ, your sacrifice on behalf of my sins. I'm not going to respond to it. I'm not going to receive it. Or we receive it. And if we are to receive it, we will be transformed. Because you see, to be fully loved, to be loved uh, without any binding, 
means that our, all our weaknesses will be conveyed to that person or that God, and yet they still love us. It means we will be embarrassed, yet we are still loved. It means we will be completely humiliated, yet we're still loved. And so, to be loved fully is to be transformed. It's to break down all the walls in our heart. It's to receive love. And we will be transformed. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, what we're going to look at is... Why we do what we do, we do it because of what He has done. We do it because of what He's done. And then our second main point for the morning will be what the gospel of grace does. The gospel trains us. And we'll see what the gospel trains us to do. Children, as we begin this morning, the main point that I hope you see this morning is the reason that you will obey Jesus It's not because there are rules, but it's because He has loved you. If you are to obey Jesus, it's because He's loved you. The reason you should obey your parents is because your parents love you and intend what's best for you. And children, it's the same with God. You will obey Him. You will walk with Him because He's loved you. Let's look at these first verses together. Congregation, we're going to look at verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. What God has done. First, it says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. This grace that Paul is speaking of to Titus, it's shorthand for Paul for Jesus, for the entire life of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And let me give you some scriptures to defend this. Second. Timothy verse 1, verses 9 through 10, you'll see this in your notes. It says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing, listen to this language, it's the same as in Titus, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. When Paul speaks of the appearance of the grace of God in, these cha- in every place here, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, his entire life, his having come on the scene. And this is in John 1, verse 14 as well. John says, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, Father full of grace and truth. You see, when Christians speak of grace, it's not just a concept. When Paul speaks of grace, it's not just a concept. His primary reference point is Jesus. The life of Jesus. It's all of it. And so, Christians, when we see this, when we see God, the grace of God has appeared, what we're referring to is everything about Jesus. That Jesus was born, that Jesus lived, that He showed grace to others in His life, and that He died so that we might be shown grace because of our sins. One question that we might should ask here is, why does God show grace? Because we're going to get to the need of man. But lest we become very man-centered here, which is very possible. We love, John 3.16 is wonderful. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him would not die, but have everlasting life. It's easy to become man-centered in all this, that God sent His Son Jesus just because man needed Him. But let's look at the rest of the Bible. Why does God show grace? Ezekiel 20, verse 20, verse 44. 
God says, you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. If you survey the Bible, God often says why he's showing grace to a people is for his own name's sake, for his glory. Ephesians 1, 5-6, a New Testament passage on this. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Friends, the reason he shows us grace is not primarily just for us. It's for his own glory. This will become uh, important for the rest of the sermon. But we need to recognize this. God is not man-centered. God is God-centered. The Bible's not man-centered. It's God-centered. In the beginning, God. It's a book about God. It's a book about God's rescue plan to save humanity. But it's all for his glory. So he sends salvation for his glory, but it is because of our need. This is affirmed. I'm not trying to say this isn't important, but I just want us to recognize that God's salvation is not just for us. It is for his glory. It's going to necessitate our obedience. So let's look at man's need. Only Christianity, this is very important, only Christianity recognizes the true nature and need of humanity. Look at this verse. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Bringing salvation for all people. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Friends, what has happened to us in our sin is not just that we struggle. That's not the only issue. It's not that we just sometimes don't do good. The issue, friends, is that we're dead in our sin. That no one is righteous. No, not one. And no one can save themselves. Other religions and worldviews don't recognize this. Inherently, they say, we're good, we just struggle sometimes, and we need to continue to look inside ourselves and find that goodness that's really inside us. No! The Bible says you are dead. We are devoted to wickedness. In our hearts, we seek evil. And so, we need a Savior. And so God comes for our salvation. The salvation of all people. Now, let me just say, some would try to say that this is universalism. God has brought His salvation so that all people will be in heaven one day. But that's not what this verse is saying. The rest of the New Testament makes this very clear. And so what it's saying, salvation for all people, is that all people have become aware and are becoming aware of the opportunity for salvation. God is offering it through Christ to all people. That doesn't mean that all people will accept it. And so God sends salvation because of man's need and for his glory. But also, what God has done for us, God has assured us that he will return. Look at verse 13. It says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God has assured us that He's not just going to leave us here, that He will return. Matthew 24, 37. I've just given you a couple verses to, to give proof of this. Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to His second coming. John 14, 18, just a a quick one. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Jesus has promised us throughout the New Testament that he will return, that he will come. And let me just say this, our faith here is rooted in the fact that God's never broken a promise. God has never failed in any promise that he's made, but he's always done what he said he was going to do. And so as we look to the scriptures, we have this promise that he will return and we look at his faithfulness and we know God will return. He's not a ruler who's limited in power, but he's a ruler who's patient and he's wanting all to come to salvation. This is why he waits. Jesus is waiting until the father gives word and then he will come. There's also a a contrast that's being made here in these passages. You'll notice in verse 11, he came in grace, correct? The grace of God appeared when Jesus came in the incarnation. But look at how he returns. In verse 13, it says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a contrast occurring here. You see, Jesus, when he came the first time in the incarnation, he was born as a meek child, as a baby, just like we were all born. He had to be taken care of by his mother. He grew up. He was a man. And then even as a man, he was extending the salvation of God. He was telling people about it and sharing. He was meek. He served. And so when he came first, he came in grace. But it says when he returns again, he will come in glory. When he comes the second time, friends, it won't be just extending grace. He's already been extending grace. The second time he comes, he will come in full glory, full majesty. He'll come as a powerful, benevolent ruler of his people, but as a terror to those who haven't accepted him and to those who don't trust him. And so there's this contrast that we need to recognize that as we look back in history to his coming, he is gracious and kind and he's extending that salvation to all people. But when he returns, he will come in glory and he will come as judge. He will come as a judge. What else has he done? He gave himself for us. He was our substitute. Look at these verses, verses 14 through 15. He who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This language here, when it says that he gave himself for us to redeem us, it's the language used in, in slavery at this time. And so Christ giving himself for us, he is paying our debt of slavery. And so a slave, someone would come and say, I want, to, I want to buy that slave. I want to buy his freedom. But in order for him to do that, he would have to pay the price. And so he would pay the price of that slave. And this is what the text says that Jesus did for us. He gave himself for us. He stood in our place to redeem us from all lawlessness. So, Jesus stood in our place. He put He went to our place where we were supposed to be as slaves. He suffered what we were supposed to suffer because of our sin. Now, what exactly is he redeeming us from? What type of slavery were we in? It says, the text says that we were in lawlessness. Lawlessness. Now, this can be described in a couple of ways. First, it's a lack of a moral compass. We really don't know even what to do. 
We have no conviction. This is what Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard it said that you should do this, that some outward obedience, that you should not commit murder. But he says, but I say to you that even when you think evil of your brother in your heart, you've committed murder already. You see, one of the things we really need to recognize, friends, that being good is not about just outward behavior. It's about the heart. And so what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying here through the Holy Spirit, is that in our hearts, apart from Christ, we're devoted to lawlessness. In our hearts, we cannot be good. Even if our outward behavior says that we do good things, our hearts are not good. We still tend to think evil of others and do evil in this way. So in this sense, Jesus comes and he redeems us from that lawlessness, that propensity towards evil. But there's also a different type of slavery. We don't don't really have a moral compass. But then also, even the moral sense of moral compass that we have, we can't abide by it. Listen to Romans 6.6. And let me encourage you in this. You need to know Romans 6, 6, Romans 6. Every Christian, every believer should be aware and familiar with Romans 6. It's very important to Paul's theology. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old man was crucified with him, Jesus, so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, the truth is that even the moral compass that we do have, our outward, whether it's outward obedience and trying to be good, we can't even abide fully by that. We're enslaved to sin. And so Jesus comes and it says, He gives Himself for us to redeem us from our lawlessness, to take away our propensity towards doing evil, to enable us to do good. There's another aspect of this. It says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This purify word, it means to cleanse. And, and the picture here is of a dirty pot. It's the same word used when we speak of like a dirty pot. A pot, in order for it to be useful, it needs to be cleaned, right? You don't want to just use the dirty pot over again. Some of you may want to, but most people would not. You want to clean that pot. In order for it to be useful, it needs to be cleaned. And so what the text is saying is that Jesus forgave us for our... He stood in for our lawlessness, for our tendency towards evil. But then he also... He didn't just do that, but he cleansed us from everything we had done in the past. He made us useful again. You see, if He just redeemed us from our lawlessness, if He just took away our tendency towards evil, but we still had a past in which all we did was evil, we couldn't do the good. We don't know how. And so what it says is that Jesus redeemed us from the lawlessness and then cleansed us so that we might be able to do good. I want to try to paint a a picture of this and we're talking in terms of slavery, so I want to use this. If you'll, if you'll imagine with me, back in, in the mid-1800s, in early 1800s, slavery was at its peak in American culture and American society. And so if one of you came along, you being a good Christian and wanting to do what's good, you said, I want to buy a slave's freedom. I, I want to purchase that slave, and I just want to give him freedom, her freedom. And so you said, I'm, I'm going to pay their price, and you, you paid their price, their owner, you said, I, I'm paying their debt, whatever they cost you, I want to pay for it. That person has grown up in slavery. They've been a slave all their life. They're 35 years old. So you buy that slave. 
And then you feel good about yourself and you say, well, I've done a great thing. And you have, that's, that is a great thing. But if you just say, okay, slave, I, I've bought you. Now go out, live your life, you're free. Now remember where we are. We're in the height of, Amer- of s- slavery in American society. What shot does that slave have? Could they get a job somewhere? Could they live a sustainable life? No. If that slave's going to do any good, and if they're going to be able to live and actually have freedom, you're going to have to take that upon yourself to enable that person to live freely from that point on. Slaves aren't accepted in the society. They can't get jobs. African Americans were not accepted at all. Friends, this is what's happened to us. It's not just that we need to be bought back. It's, this, it's that we need to be taught how to do good. We need to be given the chance to do good and enabled to do good and to survive. And so this is what Jesus has done. He's taken it upon himself that we might do good and be able to live a life of goodness. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. This is in your notes. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God? You see, this is what cleansing is all about. It's about enabling us to do something different. It's enabling us to do good. And so, Jesus, through His blood, cleanses our conscience from dead works, from all we've done in the past, and He enables us to worship the living God. Worship meaning do good towards God. Again, this point is emphasized that we emphasized at the beginning, that God's salvation is not just for us. It's not just so that we can go to heaven when we die. It's for His glory, so that we might live lives for His glory. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and this is not in your notes, it's a verse many of you are familiar with. It says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, do you see this? You who call yourself a believer but continue to walk in sin, do you see this? God has redeemed you so that you might glorify Him and exalt Him through your life, through a transformed life. And so, God has done all this for us. God has saved us. But it's not just for ourselves. He's brought us from death, from slavery to sin. He's taken away all our past. He's cleansed it. It's new. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But it's for Him. It's not for you. It's for His glory. Now, let's move on to this second main aspect of our text this morning. We've studied what God has done. But let's look what the gospel of grace does. Sometimes we, we like to just, li- that happened. That's in the past. God saved me, and, and now I'm saved. I accepted Jesus. But the point of the gospel is that it continues to sustain us, that it continues to train us and transform us. So, let me read to you a couple of quotes and introduction to this. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was, lived in Germany during the time of World War II. He would eventually lose his life trying to defend people and trying uh, to take Hitler out. And whether you agree with what he's done or not, 
The man was a great disciple of Christ and was seeking to be obedient to God in all that he did. And in one sense, you can very much say that he was a martyr for a Christian faith. But this is what he says. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now friends, this has long been a debate within Christian history of how how we are to say that we're saved by grace only, yet James says, uh, faith without works is dead. How are these to fit together? Here's what we know for sure, and we've heard others say this, that it is by faith alone that we're saved, but faith never stays alone. That works will always accompany genuine faith in Christ. Another quote, salvation is free, but it will cost us our very lives. Salvation is free, but it will cost us our very lives. If you know Christ and you seek Christ, friend, then your life will be radically different, radically changed. You will obey the things that we talked about last week. You will live by the commands of the Scripture. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey, obey my commandments. So is your life changed, friend? Let's look at how it's to be changed. Now, when it says in verse 12, the grace of God has appeared in verse 11, and it says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This word training, it comes from the word that we get pedagogy from, teaching. It means that the gospel of grace, grace is a teacher. It teaches us things. Now, grace is very different from law. You see, law only exposes our difficulty in saying no to things. If we abide by rules, rules just expose our struggle with abiding by them. But grace welcomes us into the loving relationship with God, and it enables us to say no to what's evil and yes to what's good. This is what the text is going to say. Training us to renounce ungodliness. This word means a strong denial. We have nothing to do with what is ungodly. And worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Listen to Romans 6.14 concerning not engaging with the worldly passions. It says, again, the chapter on Romans is about sin and not being slaves to sin anymore in Christ. And it says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Friends, when you embrace the grace of Christ, sin no longer has to have a hold on you. Is there some nagging thing that just continues to have a hold on you that you can't seem to get rid of? Are you trying to abide by law or are you abiding by grace? The grace, the free grace of Christ that helps you to obey. A law will continue to bring guilt, but grace brings freedom. Freedom to obey. Let's look at these positive aspects. So we're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, have nothing to do with them, but I want to focus for some time on these next aspects, the positive aspects that grace teaches us to do, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
If you've been with us for the last few weeks that we've been in Titus, the self-controlled characteristic has been in almost every sermon of the book of Titus. It describes the man who's to lead God's people. He's to be self-controlled. It describes the older men who are among the congregation. They're to be self-controlled. The older women are to be self-controlled, not addicted to much wine. The younger women are to be self-controlled. And then the younger men, the only description it gives is they are to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. I want to spend some time on this. Because you notice that Paul does not say completely abstain from everything in the world, nor does he say indulge in everything in the world, but he says be self-controlled. Self-controlled. Now why would I want to spend so much time with this? So clear. Because Christians have tended to respond in the other two ways not self-controlled, but completely abstaining or completely indulging. Let me give you just what I think are a few societal examples of how this plays out in our modern times. I'm going to list a few. Sex, alcohol, entertainment, money, and sports. And I think we do this in different ways. First, how should Christianity engage sex? You see, Christianity is supposed to say no to excess, but yes to what God has created for good. We don't worship it through pornography and recreational relationships, but we respect it and we embrace it as a gift of God for marriage. We don't abuse it, but we show the world what it looks like to engage in what God has given for good. The same is true for entertainment, friends. Instead, we say, well, you can't watch rated R movies. Well, The Passion of the Christ, that one's about Jesus. You can watch that one. What about PG-13? Well, they're over 13. They can watch PG-13. Well, that one has nudity in it. What do you do now? It's not about legalism here. It's about embracing Christ, and it's about embracing what's good. What about alcohol? My struggle here is that we've been talking about the false teachers who pile law upon law, and they go beyond God's law. Friend, when you say Christians don't drink, that is piling law upon law and saying something that the Bible does not say. Now, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't have wisdom. But my struggle is that you might not be relying simply on the grace of Christ. You might be relying on your laws to get you into heaven. And that is a place where you need to check your heart. What God has called His people to is not abstaining, it's not indulging, it's self-control. And it's wisdom. It's honoring what God has created for good and showing the world how it is to be used for good. And I wonder if you're a light in this way. I said sex, alcohol, entertainment, money, sports. What about money? Do you know how to use that for good? Are you self-controlled with your finances? And here's the trouble. When we say Christians don't do this, but then we're not consistent in that, our, our witness is rejected. It's not good if we're not consistent. Money. Will you say something to people who are not self-controlled in their money, in their spending, and how they use it for God's glory? And then sports. <laughs> And this one is, can be engaged in various ways. 
With this one, we might go too far sometime. And please, I'm not trying to create a legalistic standard here, but if we miss worship on Sunday morning because we're up late cheering with our hands held high, this looks an awful lot like worship. And this is just a place we need to check our hearts. I'm not saying you do, and I'm not saying raise your hands for sports is wrong, but we need to check our hearts. Is worship with the community of faith more important or or sports? I'm not saying missing worship is sin. Please hear me, but you do need to check your heart. Listen to this worship song. All praise to thee, molder of mankind. May greater glory, love unending, be forever thine. Our worth in life will be thy worth. We pray to keep it true, and may thy spirit live in us. You know the last words to that one? Forever LSU. Here's my charge to you, Christians. And I believe the words charge. I'm not trying to just be fleshly here. I believe it is the words charge. Are you engaging? Are you embracing what God has created for good in a way that the world sees how it's to be used? Marriage, God has created it for good. Many things in the world, God has created it for good. And the problem is not that it's evil, but it's the problem that the world abuses it. And so when you see it as evil, friends, you're denying what God has created for good. These things are amoral. It's how we use them. And my concern is that we're not showing the world how they're to be used. So, I want to leave you with that. (laughs) I'll wait for a response after the sermon or this week. Now, what else? What the gospel of grace does. Grace teaches us how to use God's gifts for good. Grace also teaches us to wait for Him. In verse 13, we looked at what God does for us. He's promised us that He will return. But also, we are waiting for His return. Our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Grace teaches us to wait. Our life perspective is set between these two points. Christ coming and Christ returning. And we live within this perspective. And this is why that song, the song we sang last is so important. Christ, Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. He will come again. So we wait for Him. Grace teaches us to wait, to live within that waiting in a way that honors Him and glorifies Him. And then we eagerly do good. This is why God has done the work that He has done in us for His glory so that we might do good in His name. In verse 14, Jesus redeemed us from all lawlessness so that we might do good. He purified us for himself, a people for his own possession. We are his special people. He paid our slave price. He owns you. We're zealous for good works. The word is actually, it's a noun, it's zealot. We are zealots for good works. You see, in the gospel of grace, good works are no longer an obligation, but they're a joy. It flows from us. Because we know what God has done in us. We know what God has done for us. So why do we do what we do? Friends, it's all grace. We do what we do because of grace. Because He's lavished His love upon us. Because He saved us. Because He's made us worthy to be called His children. It all flows from this. And the last verse... 
Declare these things, Paul says to Timothy. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We'll get into some more of these things next week, but in this one in particularly, respect our authorities in the gospel. We respect, grace teaches us to respect our authorities in the gospel. Paul gives Titus this authority. Because Titus is preaching the gospel and his foundation is the gospel, he tells them boldly, Titus, you declare these things, you encourage these people in these things, and then you rebuke with all authority. And the last phrase, let no one disregard you. Paul is saying, Titus, as far as it is up to you, as far as you are able, don't let anyone disregard what you're saying because it's based in the gospel, the foundational reality of, hum- of all mankind, of what God has done. And so let me just comment in this way. You should at least heavily consider what these men say. What the authorities in your life, the, the teachers in your life, you should heavily consider what they say. Because while they're capable of being wrong, they're given their lives for your discipleship. Now sure, there are men who abuse this. And I challenge you, you put the Bible in front of you and you don't let them lead you in a wrong direction. But for men who are basing everything that they say within the gospel, within these truths of what God has done for us, I challenge you, strongly consider what they say. If they rebuke you, patiently consider what they say. Because if their heart is really there, what they want is you to know God more. What they want is you to have the truest relationship with Christ. So again, they're not always right. I realize that. I know I am not. But, for the most part, many of them are trying to do good and seek your good. Let me leave you with with this verse, and we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. This passage, this entire passage, is about putting together what we do and why we do it. What we're saying here, what the text is saying, what Paul is trying to say so boldly is that you cannot receive the grace of God and then just continue in your sin and act like nothing happened. You can't say, yeah, I became a believer, I, I was saved at nine. And then your life in ten years looked no different. You haven't matured in the faith. And the Bible is very clear on this. In another place, I want to read you this verse and leave you with this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. You can write these verses down if they're... I can't recall if I put them in your notes. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I want to read it again. I I want to be very clear here. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Friend, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, it doesn't matter. The concern is, are there works that flow from what God has done in your heart? Is there evidence of your salvation? 
of the work that God is presently and has been and will continue to do. This is what salvation is. It continues to work in us. It continues to train us. It is grace, and so it is a process. It forgives. It restores. It cleanses. It's patient. It's kind. This is our Savior. But, if you don't have it, you don't have it. So do you know Him? Is your heart changed? Is your life changed? Your your eternal destiny depends on this. On this. And so, I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's wonderful that this morning we studied the, the gospel. That Christ stood in our place. That He redeemed us. And that He also cleansed us. I think it's part of God's intention that through the Lord's Supper we have a visual of this. Many of us are visual we learn through seeing and observing things. Well, this morning through... Oh, goodness, you might get to see it. There you go. But through the Lord's Supper, you have a visual of what Christ has done in the crucifixion and in the resurrection. You have a visual of what...